Good morning, Hayden Bible. We better bow our heads before anything happens, Lord. Thank you. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Lord of glory. We bow before you as a church today. You're God. We're your creation. You've washed us in the blood of Christ. You've made us accepted in him. Today, Lord, everything that happens, we desire that it blesses your heart, that you're pleased with it. And Lord, today we pray that you would illumine your word to give us an expanded view of Christ, our captain, our savior. Lord, let us see him in his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Happy Sunday. Happy Lord's Day. Happy Lord's Day. Do you guys like books? I like books. Too much. Back in 1877, a bishop of the Church of English, England published one of the great classic works of the Christian faith that continues to minister to the church even today. Throughout the life of J.C. Ryle, this insightful pastor noticed alarming characteristics in assemblies of Christians. As he compared what was happening in the church with what he saw in scripture, the trends he saw compelled him to write his classic work called Holiness. In his book, he writes and says that there is an Athenian love of novelty abroad and a morbid distaste of anything old and regular and in the beaten path of our forefathers. Thousands will crowd to hear a new voice and a new doctrine without considering for a moment whether what they hear is true. There is an incessant craving after any teaching which is sensational and exciting and rousing to the feelings. There is an unhealthy appetite for a sort of spasmodic and hysterical Christianity. The religious life of many is little better than spiritual dram drinking and the meek and quiet spirit which St. Peter commends is clean forgotten. Crowds and crying and hot rooms and high-flown singing and an incessant rousing of the emotions are the only things which many care for. Inability to distinguish differences in doctrine is spreading far and wide, and so long as the preacher is clever and earnest, hundreds seem to think it must be all right and call you dreadfully narrow and uncharitable if you hint that he is unsound. What J.C. Ryle saw as he looked over the landscape of the Christian church in his day was an unhealthy response to our holy God. He saw a landscape of Christianity convinced that God was common as opposed to holy. 
And because of that, the church was becoming less and less vital in carrying out the mission of God on the earth. When God is common in our hearts, His purposes become mundane. And His people are viewed as ordinary. When God is holy in our hearts, His purpose becomes absolutely paramount. And His people are vital to His mission. In Matthew 13, as Jesus was teaching in his hometown of Nazareth, he was teaching in the synagogue, and his teaching was filled with so much wisdom from the word, and the miracles that he'd performed were so powerful in their eyes that they couldn't reconcile in their hearts the fact that he'd grown up just down the street. In Matthew 13, 55, they said, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Isn't he from our neighborhood? Isn't he common? Isn't he just like us? And they took offense at him. He he wasn't holy to them. He was mundane and common, just like everyone else. He was just another interesting speaker. He was just another community event to go to. He was just another guy with a PowerPoint. Another of thousands of opinions on lofty and ethereal things. Their superficial understanding of God blinded them to his actual power and robbed them of the splendor of his glory in his holiness. And so he chose to display his power in other places because of their unbelief. As we continue our series this morning on God's church, we're stopping to be attentive to the methodology of church. The methodology of church. Not only is our methodology of church reflective of our view of God, but a right methodology is vital to carrying out our mission as God's people in His power. So let's be convinced this morning and let it be our theme that in the city of God, the heavenly city that's come down out of heaven from God, born from above and living on earth, and carrying out his will on the earth, that in terms of methodology, primarily church is the pursuit of a holy God. Church is the pursuit of our holy God. When God is holy in our hearts, in our assembling together, his purpose becomes absolutely paramount. His people become vital to carrying out his will. And as a result, his glory spreads throughout the planet, just as the waters cover the sea. Church is the pursuit of our holy God. This pursuit of our holy God is primary and foundational in every aspect of church. From Sunday school to church picnics, to, from worship to cleaning the restrooms, church is the pursuit of a holy God. I'd like to start this morning in Revelation chapter 1. And the reason why I'd like to start there is so that we can have a right vision, a right understanding of a biblical response to the person of Jesus Christ. 
Who is he that we should pursue his holiness? And as you're turning to Revelation 1, a writing penned by the Apostle John, I I want to remind you of a special place in the Gospel of John. In John 13, you'll remember the disciples being brought by Jesus into a special place, a special intimate setting where he could speak his final words before the cross to them. He, He brought them into a quiet room so they could be solely focused on him, listening and learning from him. And we all marvel at the scene after the Last Supper. Jesus very personally and very tenderly washes his disciples' feet and he serves them. And then afterwards, as he reclines back down at the table, and in this culture, by the way, they were likely reclining on a mat on the floor around the table, maybe resting on an elbow, their legs stretched out as they ate and and visited, and he, he talked to them. One of his disciples seated next to him in a show of godly endearment. And what had grown to become a trusted friendship in their discipling relationship was actually comfortable to lean against Jesus. Maybe the way you've leaned against one of your friends, or maybe over the years with, as you, maybe as a young person, ways that you've leaned against your mom or your dad when you're sitting with them. Most of us think this is the Apostle John leaning against Jesus because he describes himself like he often does in his gospel as one whom Jesus loved. Astounded by the holy love of Jesus, the God of heaven, the God who came to rescue sinners, and Jesus did love him, and he was blessed to be loved by the Lord because the Lord loves his disciples. We love this scene from Scripture, don't we? I would think that if this Scripture doesn't have some sort of a special place in your heart, if it isn't glistening and sparkling as you read it, you might not have a clear vision of your Savior. Now to Revelation 1. This same John, who listened to the voice of Jesus as he was leaning against him, reclining at a table in a room and having a meal together after the cross, after Jesus had ascended to his throne in heaven, this same John found himself exiled onto an island, in prison in a sense, because he had been testifying of this wonderful Savior, the Messiah. He'd been preaching the word of God, And that made him dangerous to the good order of society. Dangerous in the right way, by the way. So he was thrown into prison. And while he was there, he was given the revelation of Jesus Christ. And and he was told to write the revelation in words and send it to seven churches of that day. And in chapter 1, verse 12, John was hearing the voice of that was sounding an alarm. It, it sounded like a trumpet. And, and John says in verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Is this your God? That you would fall at his feet like a dead man this morning? Is he astonishing to you? Is he awesome in your heart, the true way that awesome should be used? A common God, a God of our own invention, a God who is essentially similar to us in our imaginations is a God that we have to compensate for. That's a God that people have to dress up to be like the world so that we can appeal to lost people to trick them into coming to church. That's a God not capable of carrying out His will on earth. A a God who has no power to accomplish His great commission. It's a God that people have to help out with smoke machines and, and light shows. That's a God that can't save people, so we have to blur the line between born-again believers and lost people to be relevant to the culture. It's a God competing with our zeal for our political party because it's a God of no power. And so we hold rallies instead of preaching the gospel for revival. This is a false God. Not the one true holy God of the Bible. Let's see the real God. Look at verses 12 and 13. John writes and says, When I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. First of all, in pursuing his holiness this morning, we find the God-man shepherding his church. These lampstands are his church bearing the light of the kingdom of Christ among the nations. The, and the light they shine is the light of the presence of God shining brightly in the power of the Holy Spirit displayed in righteousness as a city on a hill. And this God-man, Jesus Christ, the very Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, the, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world who was now exercising dominion in glory, reigning from his throne, having swallowed the wrath of God at the cross, is the one John sees in the midst of his church, our Lord and shepherd, the king of glory himself. In John 10, the good shepherd says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This God-man we see shepherding his church not only purchased and founded his church, but actually is the one who provides the light that his church shines in this dark world. We know his voice. 
We follow him as he walks among us and we trust him to provide what we need to carry out his mission. If you continue reading in his revelation, you see Jesus warning churches, having started in the right direction, focused on him and being shepherded by him. But if not careful, slowly and almost imperceivably wandering away. Eventually, even being told by the shepherd that we have lost our first love. Our hearts begin to be enchanted by other things and not him. Our programs and our hipster music and current social causes start to become what church is about. We can even drift into unorthodox, satanic doctrines and reinvent Christ into a God more acceptable to his enemies. Joining hands even with darkness. Joining Satan the accuser and bringing charges even against God's church. Offended by the true church of Jesus Christ lying flat on its face, worshiping but because they're astonished of a holy God. Instead of capitulating to a lost culture who hates him. We can find ourselves neither cold nor hot apathetic and uninterested in him, refusing to recognize his holiness. Convinced he's become boring. And so we try to dress him up in new clothes to be more interesting and to answer the agenda set by the voices crying out against his kingdom. Look in verse 13, he's already dressed. This one like the son of man was clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. And girded across his chest was a golden sash. In pursuing his holiness, what we're actually finding this morning is the eternal high priest of God. We we remember the, the Levitical priests of the old Mosaic covenant, clothed in Levitical priestly clothing, a tunic, a, a robe, an ephod, a breastpiece, a linen sash, a turban. And, and as they served in the presence of the lampstand, In the tabernacle or temple, with its seven lights burning, Levitical priests working to follow the law of God as they ministered the law to people, helping them by carrying out offerings and sacrifices brought to atone for their sin. They served as long as they lived. And and they ministered as long as they could. But too soon, they would pass away and, and the next generation would need to come up behind them. And not only did they die, but they had to deal with their own sins before they could even begin to serve the people. Beset with weaknesses themselves, with sin dripping everywhere, they were ultimately insufficient priests with short-lived ministries. But in verse 13, we see the eternal high priest of God. We see the real priest that all other earthly priests only signified. With a robe reaching to his feet and a golden sash around his chest. A royal priest king we see here in verse 13. A priest of a completely different order. A priesthood without beginning and without end. An eternal priesthood with a high priest who will never die. The high priest who is the son of God. Of the living God. A high priest without sin. 
holy and innocent, sacrificing himself for others, the spotless Lamb of God, entering the holy place by the merit of his own blood, ministering a better covenant based on better promises, a new covenant, and ushering in a whole new reality for its beneficiaries. Can you see him today? You might be surprised at what you'll find if you set aside your own agenda and pursue him in his holiness. You might find boldness to approach the throne of God. You might find a conscience cleansed of an evil heart. You might find a new and living way. You might find the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured a cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So you need to be careful because you might find Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you do, I guarantee he'll ruin the life that you've lusted after, but he'll replace it with a life worth living. Let's look back at our passage. What John saw in verse 14, his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. What is holiness anyway? Just another word for righteousness? Actually, it's not the same. In fact, Scripture uses both words in the same sentence. For example, Zacharias says that our redemption is to the end that we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In Acts 3, Peter preached that the Jews disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to them. In terms of the person of God, righteousness speaks of God's justice and moral purity. There is nothing ever unjust or immoral in God's character. He's the definition of righteousness. In God's holiness, we see that God is separate from and transcendent above his creation. He is separate from from and transcendent above his creation's corruption. He's holy. And as we approach him, we approach him as his creation. He's the creator and we're the creature. Here in verse 14 is creatures in awe of our great God, seeing his head and his hair white like white wool, like snow and his eyes like a flame of fire and pursuing his holiness this morning, we find the eternally honorable one, the transcendent judge over all. His vision is crystal clear vision. Seeing beyond the facades of corrupt hearts with perfect clarity, piercing into the deepest recesses of our inner beings. Later in Revelation, as God's wrath is being poured out, heaven is crying out saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. 
In 2 Timothy 4, Paul exhorting Timothy to preach the word, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. What should our response be to this transcendent judge whose gaze pierces into the deepest recesses of our hearts? What should our response be to the holy and righteous one who knows me better than myself and any form of pretense before him would be absolutely pointless? Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You can't hide from him. You can't fake your Christianity. You can't hide your sin and expect that it won't be exposed. All things are open and laid bare to him. He's the transcendent judge over all. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. His gaze pierces deep within you. So how do we respond? We yield to him. Like David, we come to him humble contrite of spirit, bowing before him, and we say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We say that personally in the privacy of our own prayers to him, and we say that corporately as we live out life here at Hayden Bible Church. Church is the pursuit of a holy God. As a church, we want to be oriented to the head, not the members. How does that look in reality? It looks like me not bringing my personal agenda into the church, but instead asking him and studying his word for his agenda. That's what it looks like. It looks like me not idolizing social causes that take my heart away from him and his kingdom and his agenda. It looks like me... It looks like me trusting in him and seeking his will for the culture because he's the king. Look in verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. As we pursue him in his holiness, we find an overwhelming and victorious king. Burnished bronze feet, glowing, crushing opponents, making all his enemies a footstool for his feet. His voice roars like many waters, cascading and crashing, powerful and relentless, overwhelming and victorious and authoritative. Ezekiel heard his voice in Ezekiel 43 when he saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east and his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. Be careful. Be careful aligning yourselves with kings and leaders and revolutionaries of this world. Even in North Idaho. Instead, ask yourself, are they aligned with the king of glory? Ask that. Just a few verses earlier, verse 5, John tells us that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
Not only is he the ruler of the kings of the earth, no earthly king can overpower him. No earthly government can overcome him. And in verse 16, he uses his church to overcome this present darkness by his victorious word as we proclaim him Lord and King throughout North Idaho and everywhere we go. Look at verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the the sun shining in its strength or brilliance. By the way, we can look down to verse 20 and find that the seven stars are the seven angels or messengers of the seven churches. Christ not only controls his church, but he also controls the effective message of his church because he holds the messengers in his hands. And he's the one who is exposing sin and corruption by the brilliant shining of his face into the darkness. So we as a church, we shine his light. We proclaim his righteousness and we warn of his pending judgment so that all who we encounter might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His face is like the sun shining in its strength when his gaze is turned toward a wayward soul. There's no escape from the heat. It's like being stranded in the middle of the Bonneville salt flat during the most direct sun of the day. You can't escape his brilliant, strong countenance. There's no way. So as we pursue him in his holiness here in verse 16, we find the light of the world shining into darkness. Piercing. Everything is about him. He rules over his church. He reigns through all the universe. He alone has all power and authority and honor and glory. He's the living and active, overwhelming and conquering king ruling from his throne. And look what happened when John turned and saw him in verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. John saw the glory of Jesus Christ. And he was overwhelmed with the fear of the Lord and he fell flat on his face like he was dead. Abraham in Genesis 17, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1, Saul in Acts 9, all had similar responses. It's common in Scripture to see this response to a holy God. This is the same John, by the way, who leaned against Jesus and dared to his friend in the upper room in that comfortable and intimate setting with his disciples. But here, instead of leaning against his bosom, he fell at his feet like he was dead. He was overwhelmed with the holiness of God. Overwhelmed to see the glory of his king. Here's at least something we need to learn from this passage. In the face of the holiness of God, I am humbled with my face in the dirt. I'm overwhelmed with the fear of the Lord. I I see him appropriately. And I perceive myself accordingly. And he's wonderful when I see him like this. He says, do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's think about these things for a second. What does all this have to do with the methodology of church, anyway? How does this inform our series on God's church? Well, to answer that question, I need to talk about fly fishing just for a few minutes. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, guys, you need to capitalize on this. Or gals that are fly fisher people. One of the things that I found over the years fishing is that when I could actually start seeing the fish, it took years, but when I could actually start seeing the fish as I watched the stream, noticing them, I became a lot better fisherman. I could see him fishing and or feeding in foam lines. I could see him rising in the slow, fast water seams. I could see him coming to the surface and the heads and tails of pools. But one of the most transforming improvements to a fly fisherman's gear I found is a good pair of polarized sunglasses. <laughs> see why I say capitalize on this? They reduce the glare from the water so much that you can actually see the fish swimming around. It's amazing. Sometimes you can even see the fish rise to take the fly. I see and learn amazing things fishing through the right lenses. My normal lenses that aren't polarized, they tend to serve only one purpose. They just darken my view. Your lens has everything to do with your understanding of what's in front of you when you're fishing. The operation of God's church and local assemblies of believers has similar characteristics. Your lens can be a lens of worldliness or your lens can be the pursuit of His holiness. When our lens is worldliness, we tend to want to look like the world in the ways the church functions, in the ways that we live out church. And, and with this lens, our view is what, uh, in, of what is in front of us is darkened. Churches with these lenses become bored with Jesus. It's not, he's not relevant to current affairs. He's not spiritual enough. So they find themselves compensating for him. And so the, the, everything from worship to teaching becomes focused on what's more interesting. It becomes focused on man and not God. And all the ministries become man-centered and, and man-pleasing because the lenses are darkness. But you can see through our passage in Revelation, that's not an accurate view of who he is, is it? When our lens tends towards holiness, we, we, see, as we, we see him as we saw him today and we have the appropriate response to him. In the city of God, holiness is the guiding principle of the methodology of God's church. Holiness pursued and expressed corporately and holiness expressed personally. What lenses do you have on today? Do they clarify your vision or do they darken your vision? 
Do you see him? The God-man, the shepherding his church, the eternal high priest of God, the transcendent judge over all, the overwhelming victorious king, the light of the world shining his efficacious light into darkness. Do you see him? The captain of his church calling you to arise. Please put those glasses on. When you participate in fellowship here, our purpose is to pursue our holy God. Our ministry purpose here, in a sense, is to polish those lenses so that you can see him more clearly. But you have to have him on. When Pastor Darrell chooses songs for us to sing on Sundays, we're singing the holy word to help us pursue our holy God. When Pastor Steve or any of us shares a message from this pulpit, we're preaching the holy word to help us pursue our holy God. When our home flocks and small groups come together, we study the holy word in pursuit of our holy God. When our women's ministry and our blossoming men's ministry plan events and organize functions, they're centered on the word because we need to see our holy God. When our bustling children's and youth ministries gathered our young ones together, our purpose is to show them the glory of the living word himself as we open scripture with them as well, because even a kiddo needs to see their holy God. Church is the pursuit of the holy God. Put those lenses on. Come prepared to see what John saw. In your ministry here, show others what John saw. When you're at your job or your school or if you're a kid playing in the neighborhood with other kids in the neighborhood, help them see what John saw so that everyone falls down before him like a dead man. And by his mercy and by his grace, he touches them and says, do not be afraid. Let's pray. And the beauty of holiness, we see you, Son, of righteousness. So we bring all that we possess to lay at your feet. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eyes of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, in purity. Worthy is the Lamb. In His name we pray. Amen.